you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. So we are going to start a brand new series called The Armor of God. And so as we look at um, this passage, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting verses 10 through 18 this morning. If you want to follow along with the Bible app, a Bible you brought, or if you didn't bring one, we have Bibles available for you. And if you're joining us online, you can click the Bible tab um, as well. So before we get in there, um, there's a... That the idea of the armor of God or the idea of spiritual warfare might be really common to some of us or we might be really aware of it. Others of us are kind of, you know, I've heard about it, but, you know, I don't know too much about it. Others of us kind of are unaware of what's going on. And, but there is a struggle that is going on between each and, or within each and every one of us. And there's a struggle for things that we cannot see that are battling for our souls. There's a story of a grandson and a grandpa talking one day, and the grandpa talks about, he gives this example, he says that there, there are like two wolves that are inside me. One is filled with bitterness and frustration and anger, and the other is with grace and love, and they're warring with each other, and they're fighting with each other, and I don't know, you know, we got to find out which one will win. And so this grandson says, you know, how, how do you know which one will win? And the, grand, the grandfather looks to his grandson and says, it's whichever wolf you decide to feed. So if we allow ourselves to just be fed with bitterness and frustration and anger, then we are giving in to something that's going on beyond ourselves. If we, give, if we decide to feed ourselves with the grace of God, with the love of God, and the love of community, then we are able to then recognize that that is the, what's going to win, and that's what's going to win out in regards to this battle. Now, you might hear this phrase sometimes, like, you'll see it, maybe it's on social media, or you just hear friends talking about it, and it's this idea of, like, the struggle is real. For some of you, maybe it's, like, the idea of, you know that you have homework to do, but a friend just sent you a video on TikTok and Instagram, and you just keep watching, and then all of a sudden, you're like, the struggle is real, because now it's been 30 minutes, and I didn't get anything done. For some of you, the struggle is real because you see a sale at a store or like Amazon sends you way too many notifications about things that you specifically like and want to buy. And then they say, it's on, it's on a sale right now. And you think, oh man, the struggle is real. I want to spend this money and I have to rest with whether that's going to happen. Maybe for some of you, the struggle is real because you know how much you want to take care of yourself and, and eating well. And then you think, okay, church will be a respite for me to be able to do this. And you walk up and you just see boxes of donuts. And you're like, the struggle is real. There's an example. These are more humorous examples that we see here as well. Uh, I don't know why T-Rexes are the ones that really get highlighted on this. But this is a T-Rex trying to reach a taco, but his tiny arms can't reach it. So it talks about the idea that the struggle is real. You really want a taco. And yet, here we go. Then this, is, this one is uh, great too for T-Rexes um, about wanting to go to the gym, but his arms can't quite reach the weights. His arms can't reach up for do pull-ups. And instead of push-ups, his nose just hits it because his arms are too tiny. So I don't know why T-Rexes have become the uh, patron animal for the struggle is real. But the idea is this. We can laugh about ones like this, or we can acknowledge that there are real ones about our health, about finances, about distractions and things. 
But if there's one thing that I want us to be aware of and that I hope and I pray over the next several weeks as we dive into this section, as we look at what the armor of God is and navigate how that impacts our lives, then what I would like for us to recognize is this main point. It's simple, hopefully easy to memorize, and impactful for us to take hold of. And it's the idea that the struggle is real, but so is the victory. The struggle is real when it comes to to spiritual warfare, but so is the victory. Jesus has already won the victory for those of us in Christ, that we are now no longer condemned, that we have given our lives over to Jesus. And because of that, we are now new creations. We don't have to live in the same way. We don't have to war the same way that the world wars. We don't have to do the different things that the world does, but that God has imbued his spirit within us. And because of that, you and I are made new new when we surrender to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. And so when there's a spiritual warfare, when there are temptations, not if, when there are temptations, we will know how to stand firm. We remember that being tempted is not a sin because Jesus was tempted, but in his temptation did not sin. Friends, you and I will be tempted multiple times today and countless times throughout our lives. Which wolf will we feed? Which way will we go? And what does it look like for us to take hold of the truth that there is a struggle? The struggle is real, but so is the victory. So our sermon this morning is called The Struggle is Real. And we're going to look at three points coming out of Ephesians chapter 6. And we're also going to, to, to jump around in a few different passages as well. So the first point, if you're a note taker and you're following along, the first one we have is that the struggle is real. This is not, I've said that probably 17 times already in the first five minutes, but that's because it's important for us to be able to land on that truth, that there is a struggle, there is a spiritual warfare. That's not something that is just out there that, you know, oh, that's just for some people to believe. No, there's more going on than you and I can see. As uh, Tony Evans said, if all you see is what you see, you do not see all there is to be seen. That there's more going on than you and I can initially recognize. So I want to start off with a passage that actually comes from 2 Kings with Elisha. Remember last week, if you were, were here with us, we talked about Elijah was lonely and how loneliness is normal, how God called him to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. And so for years, Elijah and Elisha worked together, served together. And then Elijah ends up going up and he reaches a chariot of fire and he goes up to heaven and Elisha remains. Elisha is the one we talked about last week that performed more miracles in the Bible than anybody else other than Jesus. And so his ministry was vast and powerful. Now there's a story, if we jump up to 2 Kings chapter 6, where the Arameans were coming and they wanted to capture Elisha in Dothan. And so while he's there, he looks up and we find that he has a servant with him now. Like he has someone that he's doing ministry with. And here's what 2 Kings 6 says when it talks about this. Because when the servant of the man of God, to be clear, the man of God is Elisha, so there's... When the servant of Elisha got up and went out early the next morning, an army, the Aramean army, with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. He knew that they were coming after them, and he wakes up and looks, and all of a sudden he's surrounded by the enemy. And he says, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? 
The servant asked, don't be afraid, Elisha, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You and I, we look around and we see whether it's actual enemies who are coming out after our, coming after us for our reputation and want to tear us down, whether it's just temptations and struggles and we feel like there's no way out, even though we know 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that we are not tempted beyond repair and that God will always provide a way out of our temptation, we still can look around and think, there's no way I can get better. There's no way I can improve. There's no way I can escape this onslaught of attack because we are only seeing what we see with our own eyes rather than having God open up our eyes to see the spiritual battle around us. And so like the servant, we might say, what do we do? We are surrounded by the enemy. And Elisha says, open up, Lord, would you open his eyes? Now I've known people who have had um, the ability or the gift or, or whatever it may be to actually see, like they go, yeah, they, they would see demons or they would see angels. I've known people do that. That's not been my personal experience but just because I don't see it doesn't mean I don't believe it. And just because I don't see it doesn't mean that the struggle isn't real. It is absolutely still real. Now I'm going to do a hard turn talking about spiritual warfare uh, to a preschool playground. So bear with me for a second. I'll tie it into a moment. Uh, if you guys noticed over the past few weeks that we had the doors closed, the gates closed to the playground, and it was locked up because there was going to be some construction in order to get a new playground. That our preschool board, as well as our church board, and Karen, our preschool director, everyone's worked together in order to say, let's invest into the kids both through the week at the preschool and on Sunday mornings to be able to have a newer playground. And so um, for several weeks, it was closed. Last week, it was open. And here's a picture of how it looks now. And it's, uh, it's just great. Like the, the one before served us well for many years, but it was wooden and it was just, you know, not, not as nice. The, the, there were some things that were fraying away. And again, it was great for when we had it, but we were really excited to be able to install and to be able to get a new playground ready. And it was installed kind of during the first week of preschool. And so now we're able to enjoy it. And I love, I love on Sunday mornings when uh, I walk out in between services and I'll see kids running around on the playground. I see parents on the outside, both watching their kids, but also talking and that community that can develop. Now, why am I talking about a playground? Great question. Warren Wearsby, he writes this when he talks about spiritual warfare in a book that's called What to Wear to the War, a study on Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. He says this, sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground, and that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is apart from the Lord. This key part here, on our own, we are not able to stand up against the spiritual forces of evil. But thanks be to God, we are not on our own. We recognize that we, we could go about life and think, oh man, things are great. We just, when I, when I struggle, oh, that doesn't really impact anybody else. When, I, when, when we engage in things, we should, oh, that doesn't really impact anybody else. We think that we can go through life just playing. But the enemy, the devil, isn't playing, and nor should we. We think we're just a playground, and we can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and have fun here. And, you know, I'll sow my wild oats when I'm younger, but then eventually I'll, I'll you know, right the ship, and then things will be better when I'm older or whatever it is. And we think, okay, 
we're just going to play and we're going to have fun. And then, you know what, God, I mean, we think the, we believe the lie that God just wants us to be happy. God wants us to be holy like him. And that's from preachers from far and wiser and long time ago from me that have said, God doesn't call us to happiness. God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy, more like Jesus. Now, the beauty of it is that when we actually become holy like him, we can experience a happiness and a blessedness that we talked about in our previous Sermon on the Mount series. But if we pursue happiness as a temporary satisfaction that momentarily makes me feel good, then we're going to see life as a playground and we're going to miss that life is a battleground. That when there are struggles within marriages, that that is the enemy trying to drive a wedge in between what God has brought together and he wants to separate it. When there's enmity between brothers and sisters or siblings or parents and family, the Lord wants families to be strong. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord, as Joshua 24, 15 says, and yet the enemy would love nothing more than to disintegrate the family unit. And then to see the ripple effects after that happens from generation to generation to generation. And we look back, we say, where did things go wrong? Life is not a playground. I'm not here to scare you, but I am here to help become more aware of what's around us. Those temptations, those struggles, those things that we think don't impact us or impact anyone else, they absolutely do. So how do we define spiritual warfare? Tony Evans says this. He defines it this way. Spiritual warfare can simply be defined as the conflict in the invisible realm that affects what you're going through in the visible realm. It is the battle in the unseen that is responsible for the battles in the seen. So if you're struggling with the temptation, if you're struggling with whatever it may be, you think, oh, well, I just need to do this with my own strength. Because this is what I see, this is how I need to combat it. But on our own, apart from the Lord, we don't have the strength to fight against the spiritual battles around us. I know I talked about this uh, last week when I was talking about friendship and how you can, if you could find people who are like the same kind of weird as you or the same kind of unique as you. And and so I've talked about Lord of the Rings probably too much, but there's one scene where they're um, on the bridge of Khazad-dûm. You don't need to write that down. Um, and as they're walking across, Gandalf is seeing that the Balrog is there, and it's this ancient Maya evil spirit. Okay, I'm putting myself to sleep. Sorry. So what happens was that there's this big evil thing, and Gandalf is looking at the other soldiers, the other fellowship members. He's like, swords are of no more use here. Swords have no more use here. So he sends them on their way, and then he does battle with this evil. We need to recognize that there are things that are unseen that we cannot fight on our own willpower, we cannot fight on our own strength, we cannot do on our own. And yet, what is unseen absolutely impacts what is seen in our world. And so, when we fall into temptation, when we lure others, when we cut corners, when we forsake our integrity, when we forsake our witness, when we do all these things, We think, well, just a momentary slip. But a momentary slip can have a monumental impact. As Andy Stanley says, it takes years to build up trust and integrity, and it takes moments to lose it. So we need to be aware that there are battles all around us. If we were to walk in in the middle of... um, you know, the battle of, of uh, Sterling and Braveheart, or if you were to walk into the D-Day, which is represented in, um, 
in Saving Private Ryan, if you were to walk into these things that are very obviously battles, and someone tries to set up a playground, you say, that is insane. Look around you. There's a war going on. And yet we are so often more likely to give into the playground of this world rather than seeing the battleground of the spiritual forces around us. So we look at this. The struggle is real. We've all felt that temptation. We've all felt that pull to do things that we want to do and then to be able to justify our own decisions in doing them. But it's not just against this random enemy. It's not just against some, uh, someone that doesn't know what they're doing. Because not only is the battle real, we also need to recognize that the enemy is scheming. The enemy knows so much about us. Now, the enemy, to be clear, the devil is not equal to God. He's not an equal counterpart. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient, om- omnipresent, or omnipotent. He's not able to do all those things, but he still has the impact to be able to know our temptations, the gaps in our armor, the struggles that we have, and he knows how to exploit those in such a way that can cause a downfall. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, says this. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Remember, apart from the Lord, we are not able to fight these battles on our own. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This idea that, one... It's in his mighty power. Two, the idea we put on the full armor of God so we could stand against the devil's schemes. The word for scheme here is is a Greek word where we would come the root word of method. So it's this idea that he knows. He's calculating and discerning the best way to take you down and me down and us down. He knows the struggles that we've had growing up and he knows how to manipulate that. He knows the difficulties that we face and he knows how to exacerbate that. He knows the different things about us. He doesn't know everything, but he knows enough to be able to drive a wedge between us and those we love, and even more dangerously, to drive a wedge between us and God. So let's look at a few. This isn't all of them. This isn't an an all-encompassing list, but Warren Wearsby in that book talks about how in order for us to see what some of the schemes of the enemy are, it would be helpful for us to be able to, well, well, let's just take a look at what they are. And so he, he didn't write it like that. He said it much better. But some of the enemy schemes, this, he uses some of these. So some of these are from Warren Wearsby. Some of them um, I moved around and came up with on my own. So we, we worked on it together. It was nice. Uh, the enemy schemes, and here's just a few of them, right? Again, this isn't all-encompassing, but I can pretty much guarantee you have fallen into at least one of them, if not more than one of them, like many of us have. So deception. I mean, the very beginning, the serpent deceived. Did the Lord really say that if you ate from the, that tree that you wouldn't die? Or that you would die? What did he really say? Like just questions that create confusion. Deception. We, we see that the enemy, that, that John 8, Jesus says, the father of lies, that when he speaks, his native tongue is lying. It is absolutely opposed to truth. And so the enemy won't just fully confront Truth with lies, he tries to deceive us and take us down a road that we would never have said that we would have done on our own. But then he starts to question, does God really want what's good for you? Why wouldn't he just want you to be happy? Does God really ask you to sacrifice things because they're not right? 
Is that, is that what a loving God would do? And he just creates this deception. Denial. Not just the denial of like, you know, I, I deny, but like the fact that when we come to know Jesus and we surrender our lives to him, if we know that it's really not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done and, and his righteousness has made us whole because of our faith in him, denial comes when we think, when the enemy comes and will say, you know, you keep messing up. God's, you have to earn in order to be able to be loved by God. He denies the power of the cross and the resurrection in our lives. And he says, even though we know that we've been saved by grace through faith, there are times we think, well, nope, I'm still not good enough. I can't earn salvation. And until I can earn it, I can't go before God. And he denies the work of the cross. Discord, enmity between us, a lack of peace, whether that's, again, discord between us and God or discord between us and fellow believers or us and those around us to the point where we're no longer walking in peace. We are instead feeling discord, anxiety, concern, and we're not able to stand firm. Doubt, the kind of doubt that comes when we're lacking faith, the kind of doubt that comes when we said, you know, I remember there was this time when I was so set that Jesus is Lord and I had no questions about it. And then life hits us and we think, is God really good? Is Jesus really real? Is the Holy Spirit really with us? I mean, we start to doubt truths that we never would have doubted early on in our walk. And so maybe we get to a point where through deception, denial, discord, we start to question, we start to have doubts. Let me be clear, doubt can be something that can drive us towards God and then our strength is further and deepened, correct? So doubt, like temptation, is not a sin in of itself. Doubt, like temptation, can lead us to a fork in the road where we either choose the Lord or choose to walk from him. Either walk with or walk away. Then we see discouragement. This is the one where we just feel like that Elijah experience when we talked a few weeks ago, that he was just so overwhelmed. He said, God, I just want to give up. I, I can't go another step. I can't go another day. I'm so disillusioned. I'm so disheartened. I'm so discouraged that, Lord, I'm out. And God attacks our emotions, our thoughts, and the way we go about things and, and how much that can cause us that if he works in us, that this idea of encouragement is the idea that N, in, and then courage, someone who puts courage into us. I used an illustration years ago when we were outside that it's like, have you ever drove, driven by like Valvoline or, or any of these like car places and they have like that airman that's on the bottom and then like when they want you to like go to the place, they just kind of like flop up and they're like, come join us for a free oil change or whatever, right? And it's like, without being poured into with that air, without that breath, it just slumped on the side of the ground, right? But when you encourage someone, you are breathing life into them so that they can raise up their hands no matter what they're facing. But the enemy, he wants to poke as many holes and he wants to destroy as much of that as possible so that we are left lifeless on the ground without hope, without courage. Distortion. This goes back to what the enemy did here and what Satan did through the serpent when he says, did God really say that? He, he distorts something that's true and just takes it a little bit off from truth. 
And then we think, well, it sounds good. It seems fine. And we pursue that. But 1 John 4 tells us we have to discern and test the spirits that we recognize in order to know and discern truth and untruth, we have to be able to know the word of God so well that even when something sounds good, we need to say, is this what God's word says? Is this a something that seems like a good word or is this a God word? Something that shows us the veracity and the truthfulness through God's word. And lastly, distraction. The fact that we know we want to spend time with God. We would say, I want to draw closer to the Lord. And yet, whether it's social media, whether it's TV, whether it's more work that needs to be done, whatever it may be for you, we can so easily get distracted. Instead of fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, we fix our eyes on anything and everything else. And then we get distracted and we think, how did we get so far from where we once were? In the same way that when you go to the beach and we're at the beach and our girls, Shaylin loves being in the water and she's in the water and we've all done this, right? Where you start right in front of where your, you know, your umbrella is, or your towel, wherever you are. And then you play for a while, you're in the water and then you look up and all of a sudden your point of reference is gone. You've been distracted by the fun, and then you look and think, how did I get so far down the shoreline? No, she's safe, like it's fine. But we all had that experience of when we slowly, if we fix our eyes and we take our eyes off of our point of reference, we could be distracted and end up being so much farther away than we ever thought. If we ever fix, take our eyes off of God, we could end up having our sight and our lives being so far, much farther away than we initially thought. So, the battle, the struggle is real. The enemy is scheming, but friends, not to scare, but to make us aware, I want us to be reminded of the fact that the victory is certain. The victory is certain. It's not like we hope that we can win. It's that Jesus has already won and we get invited to play the game on a winning team. It's acknowledging the fact that, you know, you, you, you hear this... Um, around the time of playoffs and different uh, sports, there's a season or there's a time when the team will, you know, this team is not going to make the playoffs, for example. And then what do they say? They say, oh, well, this team can play spoiler to ruin it for other people. To other teams want to make it. The enemy loves to play spoiler because he knows he's on the losing side, but he wants to take as many of us with him. And so it's recognizing the victory is certain and has been assured because of what Christ has done. And we are invited to fight on the winning team. There's a, a picture, um, or a painting, I should say, that's uh, called, it was originally called, uh, the ch I believe it was called The Two Chess Players. Um, it's been known as the game Checkmate, or the, by the name of Checkmate. So let's show this picture here. And as we look at this painting, it's a painting where it shows two people playing with an angel watching over. Now, the interpretation of this painting for centuries has been that this represents the devil. As you can see from the evil imagery, and you can tell that he's, like, he's got the eyebrows of a devil. I'm just saying. I don't know what it looks like, but that's what it would. But he's, he's got these harsh features, and he's looking down, and he's at this point where he's smirking because he's playing someone who's obviously very stressed, Stressed about and anxious about this game. That starting to look, and as you look at the chess pieces, it looks like this man is surrounded. And just like the servant of God in the story of Elisha saying, what are we going to do? The enemy is around us. Now, as the story goes, we see that this is called checkmate because 
for the, for the majority of the time of the painting, it's the acknowledgement that this man is trying to find a way out because he knows whatever move he makes, he's in checkmate. And the devil is going to win this game for this man's soul. And the angel's watching on. And so the idea is back and forth. And he's ex- exasperated, worried, stressed. You could tell the devil has won a lot more battles and victories than this man has. And that's how the interpretation of this painting has, been, has withstood for many years. Now, I want to show you an article um, that came from 1888. So let's go to the next slide, please. So this is the Columbia Chess Chronicle, which I'm sure all of us uh, have subscribed to. Um, the Columbia Chess Chronicle um, in 1888 prided itself as the only, the only chess-focused uh, publication that came on a monthly basis in America, which, cool. And so uh, there's a story here, though. This is actually, this is a different... Um, edition. But in the August 18th, 1888 edition of the Columbia Chess Chronicle, there's a story that is called the Morphy Anecdote. Morphy, his name is Paul Morphy. Morphy um, was visiting a gentleman in Richmond, Virginia. And the gentleman in Richmond, Virginia, um, well, Paul Morphy, I should say, chess master, like, was very well-renowned. For, for his chess abilities, like grandmaster or whatever the, whatever the terminology would have been at that time. And he goes and he's at this, this estate, at this place in Richmond, Virginia. And as he's doing so, the host has a picture of that painting that we just saw hanging on his wall. As a chess champion, he's naturally looking at the game. He's looking at the board. And he, he sees what the, the devil was doing. And he sees what the man is doing. And how exasperated the man is. How, how cocky the, uh, the devil is that he's going to win. And he makes this declaration that's shared in this. And I have the copy. I wouldn't put it up there because you can't read it anyways. But I have the copy of this article where it says, at that dinner, someone, he said, you know what? Morphe said, I can see, I believe, I can win this chess match for that man. Everyone there says, there's no way. I mean, look at the way that the board is laid out. Look at the surroundings. There's no way. Morphe asks the host, whose name was Harrison, said, would you, do you have a chessboard? Can we, can we try this? And they look at the painting, they study the painting, they put the pieces exactly where it is. And Paul Morphy, the chess champion, finds a way to get victory out of seeming defeat. And then all of a sudden, other chess players, like other people who were there at that dinner party, well, let me try. And one after one, or each after the other, Paul Morphy is able to win out of what seems like a losing game. And that man, Harrison, who hosted, he had served in the military, and then it turned out that he um, ended up becoming a preacher. And so through several articles over the year 17, or excuse me, 1888 and 1889, there'd be someone who would write to Columbia Chess Chronicle that would say, well, this is inaccurate because of X, Y, and Z. And then there'd be another article back and forth. And it wasn't like, you know, YouTube comment boards, we can go back and forth. This was written in and then sent and published and then written and responded to. And eventually that man Harrison came out and said, I was the one that hosted that party. And this is exactly what happened. And the phrase that has become popular with this, even though we don't see Morphe saying it directly within this context of this article, is that he would look and say, the king has one more move. It doesn't matter how extreme things look, the king has another move. It doesn't look, we could look surrounded and Elisha talking to a servant and say, Lord, would you open his eyes to see that there are more with us than there are with them? 
the king has one more move. That we recognize that no matter how strong the temptation seemed to have a stranglehold, no matter how much we have fed the wolf that is only bad for us, the king has one more move. So let's look at this together as we close in the next few minutes. The enemy's schemes, as we look at these, we're going to go back to that list that we saw earlier. Deception, denial, discord, doubt, discouragement, distortion, and distraction. Let's look up how Paul writes as response what the armor of God is for us. So let's follow along, starting in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Let's stop there for a second. Notice the emphasis three times in just these couple verses. The emphasis of standing. Not running from the enemy's attacks. Not fleeing. But remembering also that Roman soldiers would stand side by side so that the shield of one would help cover the thigh of the other. And they would create this phalanx that would make it impenetrable for the enemy to come across. So we ought to stand firm and we ought to stand firm with shields interlocked and faith and lives interlocked to look after one another. But we stand firm. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. You'll notice we started highlighting some of the different things that were mentioned, that the armor represented each different piece, represented something else. So how do we combat the enemy's schemes? What does it look like for us to say the, the enemy wants to deceive? The enemy wants to distract. He wants to destroy all these different things. So let's pull up this list again with the view of where we're at now. If deception is what the enemy wants to do, then we have to put on the belt of truth. We have to gird ourselves with the knowledge of what is true so clearly so that when the enemy tries to deceive, we somehow get that out of here because I know the real deal and what you're saying isn't it. There are times when denial, you know what, you need to earn your faith, or you need to earn a salvation, that Jesus' blood isn't enough to cover your sins because your sins are worse than everybody else's. And we think, oh, I'm the worst of all. Now, to be clear, Paul does say for us to recognize that we're the chief of all sinners, but he does so so that God's grace can be shown all the more. Not that we keep on sinning. Romans 6, 1 says, shall I keep on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, he says. But the idea is that the enemy would love to deny that we are children of God when we give our lives to the Lord, confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. And then we display that in the act of obedience of baptism. He would love, the enemy would love for us to fall into the denial that Christ's righteousness is our, can be ours. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, the righteousness of God. Discord, division. To combat discord, we ought to have peace. The kind of peace that is fitted with the sandals of peace, the readiness for the gospel of peace, that no matter what discord may be between us and God, if we're frustrated, angry, we go back to the gospel and remind us how much he truly loves us. No matter what discord we have with other believers, 
what, what, whether we vote differently, whether we think differently, whether we act, get, and whatever it is, we recognize that the gospel reminds us that he who unites us is greater than all that could divide us. To remember that there should be a peace amongst brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that because of that, we could stand firm, interlocked, and facing the onslaught of the enemy. We look at doubt. We, we, when there's doubt, we take up the shield of faith. The one that extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil ones. That the enemy would f- shoot arrows that were inflamed. And so the, sh- the shields would have ways to, uh, they would have like leather in front that was doused in water. So that when the flaming arrows would come, they would be extinguished right away. And they wouldn't be harmed by the onslaught of the enemy. The onslaught of doubts that come at us when we're struggling. The opposite of doubt is that we lean into faith. Discouragement. When we allow the thoughts of our heads to, dis- to distract and discourage us to the point where we feel like, I just want to give up. Like Elijah, we think, I can't do it. We have to put on the helmet of salvation to make our thoughts captive to Christ. To recognize that our salvation can be assured. And that the enemy likes to steal, kill, and destroy, and yet... Jesus came that we may have life and life to the full. So if we're being discouraged because of all the difficulties around us, it's reminding ourselves of our identity in Christ, putting on the helmet to shield ourselves from those thoughts of the enemy and to remember that our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, by grace, through faith. Distortion. The only way that we can know when the word of God is distorted is if we know his true word well enough to discern it. When the world says something that sounds good, God wants you to be happy. Is that really what the word of God says? Let's, let's study the word of God and say, no, 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 God isn't after our momentary happiness. He's after our eternal joy. He's after our holiness that become, helps us to become more like Christ. He's not after just momentary times of satisfaction. He's not telling us to keep go playing in the playground when there's a battleground around us. It's so easy to distort the word of God, and the only way to know is to know it so well that you can tell the counterfeit. That bank tellers, they can tell a counterfeit when they feel it because they felt the real thing so much, the real dollar bills and what it feels like, the paper, the texture, the way that it crinkles. They can tell the real deal so much that the second they feel a counterfeit, they say something's not right about this. Do you know the word of God so well that you can easily spot the counterfeit? And then lastly, we say we want to be close to the Lord and we get caught up by distraction. And the way to combat that is to, as Ephesians 6.18 talks about, to be in prayer with all kinds of requests and praying, to watch, to pay attention, and to pray for all the saints, to pray for one another. Because prayer keeps our focus and our eyes fixed on the right point of reference. So while the wind and the waves are attacking and and, and surrounding us and Peter walks on water, when he had his eyes fixed on Jesus, he could walk on water. And when he looked around, he sank immediately. Do we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith? Do we pray to the point where we have the energy to face whatever battles are around us? Warren Wearsby says this, we must remember that we do not fight for victory as if the balance of the balance of, uh, excuse me, as if the ending of the, the battle is in the balance, but from victory. 
Christ has already won the victory for us, and we've already entered into our spiritual inheritance in him. Thus, our role in the battle with the devil is that of claiming and holding on, that standing firm idea, holding on to the territory and inheritance won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this idea that we are to stand shoulder to shoulder, that we ought to stand firm in the midst of the trials. That there are times when someone's going to carry us in the midst of that. There are times when we need to carry others. But we're not fighting for victory as if the balance of the battle is up to us. Friends, the struggle is real, but the victory is as well. And so we get to enjoy. It's hard. It's a battle. It's not easy. But we get to be on the winning team if you follow Jesus. And we get to know that in the end he wins. How do we know this? Revelation 20. We start to see about the lake of fire. We start to see about the, the, the enemy trying to tear down and bring people to follow him at the very last gasp effort to be a spoiler and to ruin things, even though he knows it's a losing battle, to play spoiler to everybody else. And then verse 10 of Revelation 20 says, And the devil who deceived them, remember, that's one of the top things that we saw, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, the struggle is real. But so is the victory. It's not easy. We all have our scars. We all have our wounds. We all have gaps in our armor. We all fall to the enemy's schemes in different ways at different times to different degrees. But we will take the next several weeks to unpack each one of those schemes and each one of those pieces of armor in order to say, okay, I want to stand firm. I know that my struggle is not against people, but it's against spiritual forces of evil. And so I wanna, we wanna pray that God would open up our eyes to see the temptations, the struggles, the trials, and the ways the enemy has a foothold in our lives so that we could stand firm and we could receive the victory that's already been won, but that we don't lose heart in the midst of the battle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to each and every one of us. And maybe for some of us, Lord, we just needed that encouragement today that we just feel like we need air and courage poured into us so that we can take another step. For some of us, Lord, we look at those schemes and we think, yep, the Lord, the enemy has me on that. And the, oh, that's one way the enemy attacks. And give us the eyes to see the ways that we fall short so that we can make sure that we put on the full armor of God to be able to prepare for the battle and to experience the victory, not in our own strength, Lord, but to be strong in you and your might. For some of us, Lord, we are in the midst of the battle. We are weary and heavily laden. May we find rest in you. Some of us, we're ready to go. May, we, may you help rally people to our side with whom we could stand firm. And Lord, no matter what, no matter how many times the enemy would try to distract or create discord or deny what you've done, Jesus, may we remember, may we remember the power of the cross, and the resurrection, and how the old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations in you. Thank you for this time we have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, 
you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.